question 250. Uh, 251 has to do with abuses of um, putting in a tabernacle or on a monstrance and adoring or worshiping uh, the sacrament that is dealt with in 251. And then we're going to go in today to the question of can the sacrament be received under one kind? That is, the practice from the medieval period continues in Rome to this day in many parishes, and that is that the laity receive only the bread. So we'll have a critique of that coming up, the bread that is his body. Let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so question 252. How is this sacrament to be offered and used under one or under both kinds, as they say? Christ certainly instituted not only one kind, but first he took bread. Then, after the same manner, he also took the cup after he had supped. And that command, this do, was attached with equal force by Christ to the cup. 1 Corinthians 11.25, and to the bread, uh, Luke 22.19. In fact, with regard to the cup, the universal clause is added, drink ye all of it, Matthew 26.27. Likewise, and they all drank of it, Mark 14.23. Okay, so very clear that according to the institution itself, there was bread that is his body, wine that is his blood, and these were distributed to everyone there, to the twelve, or at least the eleven. 253, but perhaps Christ granted his church this power that it might be allowed later to change this his institution and arrange it in a different way as Paul seems to refer to it, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty four, the rest will I set in order when I come. Boy, talk about an abuse <laughs> of, a, of a one-liner there. Answer, Paul expressly says that he had received a command from the Lord that the act of the Lord's Supper be celebrated in the way in which the institution ordered it by eating, drinking, and showing forth the Lord's death until the Lord himself would come to judgment at the end of the world. And he adds that it is not the Lord's Supper if it is not celebrated according to the prescribed order. states this in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty and 21. Therefore, when he says, I will arrange the rest when I come, it does not mean this, that he wanted to change or mutilate the Lord's institution, but he speaks of adiaphora and things indifferent. For since Christ instituted his supper in the form of a testament, it is also not allowed at another time to distort even a man's covenant if it is confirmed by adding or subtracting 
How much greater sin it is, therefore, to change or mutilate the testament of the Son of God. Uh, Galatians 3.15. Right, so the church has no authority to change the institution of the supper and to argue that the laity should only have one kind, the clergy both kinds. And what is written there, of course, that argument goes to all the words. So all the words are Christ's uh, written testimony, his written covenant and testament that cannot be altered. All right, 254, but to be sure Christ did not have the 70 disciples or his mother or the rest of the women as laymen at his first supper, but only his 12 disciples whom he was to appoint priests. Paul says that he had received of the Lord that he was to give the ordinance and command regarding the use of both kinds, not only to priests, but to the whole church of God, men and women alike. What is more, he wrote that epistle not only to the Corinthians, but to all that in every place call upon the name of the Lord. This is the true and sound explanation which Christ once understood when he says, All of you eat and drink of this. Okay, so question 255 on page 122. But Paul, 1 Corinthians 11, does not use these words, all of you drink of this. Paul did not think it necessary to repeat those words because they are set forth with greatest care by the rest of the evangelists. But he specifically says of both kinds, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six. as often as ye eat of this bread and drink of this cup, etc., unless anyone think that it is optional for us to use either one or both kinds, he immediately adds a command, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. but let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. He directs this command not only to priests, but says, let a man examine himself. Perhaps the papists want to deny that laymen are men. <laughs> okay. So obviously we're talking about the, the supper in the background is the authority of the church. Yes, sir. Yeah, I was wondering, um, maybe we're dancing around it, maybe it gets answered later. Um, what does the Catholic Church, how do they justify not giving it? Because uh, I've seen it given. I don't know if he... Oh, I'm sorry, so I cut you off. In, in the Roman Catholic, in a given parish, yeah. both kinds are received by the laity. And, and where does the... I've heard about it, I don't think I've ever seen it, where the hosts have been sprinkled with the wine. Mm. Are you talking about intinction where they're dipped, or are you talking about a different practice? A different where you get the host and it's got spots on it because they've sprinkled it. Well, I have heard something new. I didn't think. It's kind of intinction done by the priest beforehand. Yeah, I feel, I feel exasperated on the Lord's behalf because, um, like, as a parent... You say, do X and do Y. How about if I do X and not Y? How about if I do Y and not X? How about if I do not X and not Y? How about if I do Z and A? How about if I intermingle it and confuse it? And it is a study from the, and I think I've done a class on this, but it's just been a long time. You take the words of institution and you watch 
I'll say the church, but what I really mean are the unbelievers within the church, attack every last word and set forth a different meaning and a different practice for every last word. Now, if the one thing I take heart in, the one uh, and take comfort in, is that it is obviously of the utmost importance if the devil spends so much time that every single word is under attack. That it is a what what how else can you conceive of it other than utter rebellion when Christ says take eat take drink and you go you know <laughs> nah think I'm going to take and dip think I'm going to take and sprinkle think I'm going to take and just drink think I'm going to take and just eat uh, it's just it, on its face it should be absurd and I think that's Chemnitz's argument so when he says um, when Christ says this do. That's pretty definitive. Yeah, so um, obviously I think these are abuses very similar to t- partaking in one kind in tinction or this new sprinkling methodology. What on earth? What? Does, the, does the precious blood get everywhere? I mean, I don't understand this. It's wild. Men invent insane things. Maybe it harkens back to the sprinkling the blood on the Israelites. Oh, I don't know. It's bad. It's bad. Yeah, well, that's disturbing. So, did I answer your question? <laughs> well, the, the, the main question was, what do they use to justify not? Oh, yeah, okay. So there's this, there's this, and I don't know if he brings it up or not. Either way, either way, it's not going to, okay, so their, their doctrine by which they justify this is called concomitance, and it's, it's an argument on the basis of Christology that if you have the body, you have the blood. If you have the blood, you have the body. So it's this argument. Now, Lutherans tend not to buy that argument. And it's like, even if we did buy that argument, it's still not in keeping with his words, with his express command. I mean, is it so hard to just do what he says? Apparently so. Yeah. So, um, I, and you know, this, this is, uh, these abuses are just common uh, all the way up. I mean, I've seen absurd things. I'm just not embarrassed to say it all. Let them defend it. Absurd things at the district level and at the pastor's conference level. And um, it's just, a, it's an outrage. It's an outrage. Um, may, this all, may this all perish in the fires of hell where it belongs, and can we just return to Christ's simple word and a simple respect for his word, his last will and testament. Is this new or something they've been doing for a thousand years? So that's hard to say, and I may, I mean, I, I'm just going to say, don't take this as an absolutely definitive answer, but what I've run across as the origin, because often the origins have a less demonic or less pernicious start. At least that's how it, they look, it looks to be circumstantial. Okay? It seems to be the case historically that as uh, Christianity spread out, and particularly as it went up north to, think of Germanic heathens, with like the bones of their enemies and ancestors around their neck. And I mean, you know, like my great-great-grandpa or something. 
and you know their their acts and their ancestor worship and their you know I mean we're talking about pagans that just go all out into paganism. So when the church is evangelizing them, there's also even cultural issues of like not understanding reverence per se, the way the church understands reverence. So what you get is you get a sense um, what will later become, oh, what is it called? I can't think of the structure. All right, I can't think of the terminology right now. I'm sorry, maybe it'll come to me. You get a church on the inside and then a church on the outside. Sometimes you can see, you can still see this design because it's just, it's been a traditional design. Um, like if you go into a, a, like a large Roman Catholic uh, church or basilica, um, you, will, you will sometimes see that it's like the sanctuary with what we would call the nave and the chancel with the, where the pews are and where the altar is. Those two elements are architecturally and sometimes completely excluded from the surrounding area. Uh, so very frequently what you would have is you would just have um, even the, in some cases, you can even see this like the choir is there, like there's the choir and then the clergy. Sometimes just the chancel area looks like that, but it's a large chancel area. It's just the choir and the clergy, and then the hoi polloi, the people sit on the outside of that. All this architecture echoes this reality that apparently had some prevalence, which is you were, if you were just your average pagan convert, you don't go into the inner inner. You go into the outer. So those who were in the inner inner got both kinds. Those who were on the outer got um, just the bread. Now, there may be all kinds of reasons or rationale for that. Are these crude barbarians going to try to get drunk? Are they going to spill? Are they going to, you know, who knows? But this seems, these kinds of concerns in the quote-unquote mission field seem to have reflected some of the, pra- some of the change in practice. Um, I'm going to put giant air quotes and say innocently and um, even reflecting into the architecture to the present. This, these kinds of understandings of the church and the inner church. And then it just goes more narrow to the clergy. And then a theological rationale is tacked on after the fact. Well, the laity are still getting all of Christ because of concomitants, this doctrine that where his body is, there his blood is. That's the best I can do in terms of tracing. Yeah, I mean, sure, in that vein, I think what's, a, what's so offensive about it to us, and rightfully so, is that there's... It, it, both in its origin and its continued practice up until the time of the Reformation and some parishes up until the present is that it makes a bifurcation between there's the, there, there's the saintly saints and the not saintly saints, right? It makes, there's two levels. There's the clergy or choir or really at this time just the clergy and this time forward, just the clergy who are receiving both kinds and just the laity, um, but probably historically in many places before that, it was more like the inner crew and the outer crew, which is 
that kind of division in the body of Christ is sinful itself. And Paul would see that as a kind of sectarianism, a kind of dividing what ought not be divided. Anyway, I, I'm not trying to make excuse for the original practice. I'm just saying, to, like, I'm just trying to say it wasn't based on some professor sitting in a classroom going, here's my theory of concomitants. We could save a lot of money on wine if we convince the lady to just take bread. That's not the origin of it. The origin of many of the what become manifest heresies in the medieval church are questions that arise in the mission field and in some cases sympathetic, in some cases less so rationale. Um, is it widely left up to the priest's judgment? You're going to help me sort something because my uncle is now sainted and can't answer this, me asking him directly. Um, as far as giving it to everybody and not giving it to anybody, is that or even the order of priesthood that they chose to be schooled up in, does that distinguish that practice a little bit? Or, I mean, where did it get... And the reason I say it is because my uncle would always, on Christmas Day, give us all both. And he was an ordained Roman Catholic priest, Monsignor, um, and he's buried in the Vatican Garden okay. <laughs> right now. So he was pretty high up. He had a huge state funeral. How and he gave it to everybody. So how did I'm just curious how? You Do you know, know roughly the year that he would get, or I mean roughly it the was decade? Seventies, eighties. Okay. And 80s. So after Vatican II, um, this gets shifted, and the communion in both kinds starts to become more prevalent uh, in Rome. Yeah. Prior to that, not. And um, amongst the holdouts, the more traditionalist holdouts um, of Rome, uh, they continue to receive in one kind and advocate for the practice. Yeah, and that's, I was one because he was Marian, but he taught in Jesuit schools, and he wound up teaching at the Pontifical College in, in, in Rome, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he knew, but yet he did it differently. Yeah. Yeah, the, the, the Roman Catholics have this kind of uh, phrasing. Um, how does it go now? Body and blood, soul and divinity, which, of course, is, you know, you go body and blood, yes. Soul, yes, because you have to have Christ. I mean, yeah, otherwise you don't have a Christ. Um, and divinity, right. So you're saying human nature and divinity, and then you're just, parsing out the body and the blood, so it's all right. But where, what that phraseology probably means more in context is that by receiving the body, I'm also receiving the blood. I'm also receiving the soul and divinity. So it sounds one way in our ears, sounds a different way in their ears. I, I can't help but think, too, that it's cheaper to not do the body. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. Right, I, right. I don't know how they yeah, well, the, I'm sure there's that. I mean, they, like, oh, are they going to spill? Are they going to abuse it? I mean, all these things. But, but I look at these as after the fact yeah, yeah, yeah. rationalizations. And just maybe as the, we were a little more precious to him, and so therefore got preferential treatment. I don't know. Yeah, I think early, early on, there was some preferential treatment going on. Uh, and maybe I'm thinking, too, of where you'd have bar, barbarian invaders in um, the early Rome, you know, the 
Roman Empire who would convert and would still be re- kept on the outside um, of, the, of the congregation, maybe even as an act of satisfaction or church discipline. Um, how it looks in the mission field and how you work it out in concrete at a given, quote-unquote, congregation, then a theology gets built upon that, and it's like, whoa, how did we get here? Yeah. And that's a lot of what the reformers are doing, is saying, whoa, how did we get here? Yeah, I imagine so. Yeah, imagine so. Okay, was there another hand, another question? All right, let's go to um, 256, where, again, you know, if, if, the, if the idea of communion in two kinds isn't of particular interest, the subtext is the church's authority, which is a profoundly interesting and relevant topic. 256, but the Christian church probably small c Catholic, I I don't know, I'm guessing at the end note there, which is the pillar and ground of truth ordained that only one kind be offered to laymen. What a great argument. This is falsely ascribed to the true church. For the true Christian church hears the voice of its chief shepherd and follows it. John 10, 27. The primitive church of old always offered the Lord's Supper to laymen under both kinds. That's true when you go back to the fathers, um, especially early on in the Orthodox fathers, they're always doing this. And it is sharply rebuked, um, and it sharply rebuked those mutilators who introduced the use of one kind. Good. Chemnitz is as passionate as I am, as the accounts show. But in very late times, also that decree about forbidding the other kind was established and thrust on laymen, besides other abuses and abominations of the papistic church at the Council of Constance, against the express command of God and the practice of the whole ancient and primitive church. So Chemnitz is actually pointing out the Catholic Church wasn't very Catholic. Because if you're if your newfound doctrine, I mean, even if from our perspective it's a thousand years old if your newfound doctrine excludes the Orthodox fathers who came before, in what sense are you the unbroken line of St. Peter? You're not. So there are various times in which you can look at um, the development of Roman Catholicism and say it ceases to be Catholic in any meaningful sense. It's doing something new. And it has been doing that from the Council of Trent, the post-Reformation Council, forward with increasing rapidity. So think of the bold proclamations in regard to the papacy and Mary, the bold denunciation of the Pauline Gospel, <laughs> all from Trent forward. Okay, 257, but the body of Christ as being alive is not without blood, Therefore, when the body of Christ is received under the bread, isn't his blood also received, even if the use of the other kind is omitted? So this is rightly what Lutherans call sophistry. You're coming up with this very sophistic, rationalistic, academic kind of exercise to do what at the end of the day? Depart from the words of Jesus. Answer, we should, uh, we should not, on the basis of the judgment of our smart aleck reason, 
which scripture declares is not only blind, but blindness itself in divine things. Take the testament of the Son of God to ourselves to reform and change it. As though in the night in which he was betrayed and instituted his supper, he was not rational enough to know that a living body does not exist without blood. (laughs) But we should rather take our foolish reason captive to the obedience of his infinite wisdom. And in simple obedient faith, we should believe his word and obey his command. He does not say and command that we should eat his blood but that we should eat his body, uh, but drink his blood from the cup of blessing. If we very simply obey that command, there is no danger of any error to fear. Right. Are the body and blood of Christ present in the supper? Yes, for the Son of God, the truth itself, says of that which is offered and received in the supper, this is my body, this is my blood. But are there various opinions regarding this question? Some say that the body of Christ is present there only as in a sign. Others hold that only the power or efficacy and merit of the absent body of Christ are present. But others affirm that the true and essential body of Christ is present there. What then is the true position? Or is everyone free to believe what he wants regarding this question without risking loss of salvation? Answer, in the night in which he was betrayed, Christ instituted and ordained his most holy supper in the form of his last will. Now it is a violation of civil law. (laughs) Isn't that wild? Now, it is a violation of civil law, in fact, a crime if someone rests and twists the testament of a good and honest man beyond and contrary to its meaning. It is a very much greater and more grievous offense to do anything to the testament of the Son of God by changing or perverting its words, especially since Paul says, He that does not discern the body of the Lord, of which the words of the supper speak, quote, eats and drinks judgment to himself, end quote. And of course, that's 1 Corinthians 11, 29. The words of the supper are known, plain, and clear in their natural and true sense. When I ask what is present in the Lord's Supper and offered by the hand of the minister, um, again, for those of you tracking with the uh, receptionist error, note his language. What is present in the Lord's Supper and offered by the hand of the minister and received by the mouth of those who use it? Is it only bread and wine? He who is the Truth itself answers, this is my body, this is my blood. Thus Paul says, 1 Corinthians 10.16, that a breaking and communion, that is distribution and partaking or receiving, takes place in the Lord's Supper, and that it takes place by outward eating and drinking with the mouth. For he says, eat and drink. 
Now, if I ask what is distributed and received when the bread is distributed and received in the Lord's Supper, Paul answers that it is koinonia, communion, that is distribution and reception of Christ's body. All right, let's pause there. See if you have any uh, reflections or any questions. All fairly straightforward. Okay. I just had a ask for your thoughts on the connection, talking about the two kinds, uh, body and blood. In the Old Testament, if you comment on that linkage, the Old Testament practice was when the sacrifice was made, the priest would eat all of the flesh of the sacrificed mm-hmm. animal, but never drink the blood that was sprinkled. Yeah. Uh, with the two kinds, uh, should, should we be connecting the two, the, the new covenant uh, and the practice being then that it expands to drinking the blood, but maybe the Catholic, Roman Catholic Church was hanging with the practice of uh, just eating the one kind. And so anyway, I just had that thought. Yeah, well, you, you bring up um, many different things, uh, many different things that would take a long time, I think, to do justice to. Um, so maybe maybe from our vantage point, the most common kind of thing you hear is, well, it's the risen body of Christ that we eat. Um, I mean, I don't know what that's trying to prove. Usually the people who just assert, make this assertion, um, it's like kind of out of left field or something. It is, it is the risen body of Christ, and yet... Christ, so my, my favorite picture is the picture from Revelation where the lamb stands and yet stands as one having been slain. It's not like he ceases to be the crucified Christ. He is always Christ crucified and Christ risen. So I find it a meaningless distinction to say, well, I'm, I'm having the risen body of Christ, as if that were something different than the crucified body of Christ. So, I mean, especially because this is he who's crucified before the foundation of the world. So his incarnation is, and everything that happens, but particularly his death, and of course the Lord's Supper. I mean, these things touch on the divinity. These things touch on the eternity. So we partake of Christ, the risen and the crucified. Now, one can obviously see that in the act of saying, take, eat, this is my body, that's one kind or species. Take, drink, this is my blood, that's another kind or species. The body and the blood have in fact been separated from each other, which that happens, as you alluded to, at Mount Sinai with the first covenant, where the blood of the bulls is separated from the body of the bowls and the blood is sprinkled on the people. It's not to be consumed um, because of the blood prohibition that is finally, you know, you cannot drink the blood all the way thorough going until Christ says, this is my blood, drink of it, all of you. Um, and then, of course, you can look back at the sacrificial system that the atoning sacrifices, the body and the blood are always separated from one another. 
So yes, even within the act of receiving the body as one species and the and the blood is another kind or species, you're partaking of a sacrifice, of the, of the sacrificed body of the Lamb of God. Um, that body is, is life and alive. It is also crucified and sacrificed one in the same time. Does that kind of help to touch on a few of your main points? Okay. Or Yes, please. Uh, this is a little aside, but on the whole subject. Yeah. I realized a little few weeks ago, when I thought of the sacrifices, I'm just thinking of them on the altar in the Old Testament and so forth. But the connection also, as I understand it, the priests would eat the sacrifice. And I would, I think that has to be emphasized more Mm -hmm. in connection with Lord's Supper. But yeah, right, yeah. right. You have the Levitical like, priesthood okay. eating so, the, the flesh, right. But to the point that we're talking about, I've, th- I've thought when we bleed, start to bleed, right away we want to stop the bleeding. It's important, and especially if you're on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. If you don't stop the bleeding, you can bleed out. It is essential to have the blood yeah. for the body. Yeah, quite literally the life is in the blood. And the impact of the blood prohibition all the way through the law up until Christ says, drink of my blood, is that we would recognize, that all his people would recognize, that the true life by which we live is not the blood in our veins, but the blood in his veins. He is the true life by which we live eternally. Yes, sir. Was Chemnitz addressing not just errors in the Catholic Church, but also other reformers as well? That's what's going on here, especially in um, question uh, 259 and 260. Yeah, yeah. you can see articulated like the su- in 259, the sum that say that the body of Christ is present here only in a sign would be the Zwinglian and ultimately Calvin's doctrine. He signs off on the Zwinglian doctrine. And a key to touch on here would be Back in question 260, about four lines up from the bottom, you'll see this outward eating and drinking with the mouth. So the mouth is the tool of sacramental eating. That's going to be a distinction that fetches out what, from our vantage point, evangelicals, probably most reformed, confess about the supper. The eating is taking place in the heart or with faith or spiritually, but the eating is not taking place. So their, and I'm not misrepresenting, their theology is that your mouth is receiving just bread, your soul or your faith is receiving the body. Okay, but that's a, that's a spiritual eating an eating of faith. Faith is the organ doing the eating. That's not what's in view when Christ says, take, eat, this is my body. So the organ of sacramental eating is the mouth. We are truly receiving that body, born of Mary, crucified on the cross, risen on the third day. That body is the body we're receiving by mouth. If you're not confessing that, you're not confessing what Christ teaches and what Christians have, and including Lutherans, of course, have held uh, forever. Uh, so just be aware of that. There is there a spiritual eating. 
I mean, does such a concept exist? Yes, absolutely. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, and, and many others in which, uh, for example, Scripture, the Word of God, is like pure milk. And we're infants that are to suckle it all up in order that we can grow up unto salvation. So there's all kinds of spiritual eating in the Bible that is done with the soul or with the heart or with faith or whatever other spiritual organ. But the sacramental eating is an outward eating with the mouth of the true body and blood of Christ. Important distinction there highlighted. So yes, you see some of those other errors. Um, you would have a more Calvinistic would be, would be leaning. So Zwingli, if there's a distinction between Zwingli and Calvin, they both believe that the, um, that the bread is as far away from the body as earth is from heaven. But Zwingli wants to see the entire thing as a symbol, and Calvin wants to see some spiritual efficacy or import or power. And that continues to this day. You'll find just, I mean, in, in, in big box evangelical churches, like communions once a year, and it's stuffed off in the corner, and it may not even be bread and wine, and you can go do it whenever. It's completely symbolic, has no efficacy or power whatsoever. Um, and this is where Reformed people will say, well, we're not like that at all. Okay? True enough, um, but you're not like the Lutheran position or the uh, biblical historic position either. Um, what you hold to is not the presence of Christ's body and blood, but that by partaking in this meal, I am gaining some sort of, that's the second paragraph here in 259, um, power or efficacy, merit, of the absent body of Christ. So Christ's body and blood are gone, but the power, merit, efficacy is present. That kind of, that's a more Calvinistic uh, statement right there, or crypto-Calvinistic in their historic context. Okay, did I see another hand? Yes, sir? Yes, sir? Anybody, please? Nope, okay. (laughs) All right, good. So did you have something quick? Sure can hint, yeah, yeah. I mean, all the spiritual eating hints at the sacramental eating, not to make too hard of a distinction there, but when it comes to understanding the sacramental distinction, or the, the difference between a sacramental eating and a spiritual eating, you have to make that, okay. yeah, hard and fast. I mean, in that sense, like, yeah, no, let's not. Too far afield. Okay, 261. But many scripture passages must be interpreted and understood differently than the words sound. Why then is it not permitted to explain and take also those words of the supper differently than they sound, either as of a sign or of the power of the absent body of Christ or of spiritual eating? So again, an argument here made... um, The question is arguing along the lines of a more reformed or evangelical Calvinistic or Zwinglian perspective. Let's see the answer. Holy Scripture is not of any private interpretation, 2 Peter 1.20, but it explains and interprets itself. For this reason, the same statement or teaching 
is repeated for the sake of explanation in various passages of Scripture, either in the same or in other words. Thus, the like for baptism is sometimes called like um, it's like the baptizo word, but in other times it's the latreo word. So I think I have that right. So it's um, Vicar, correct me if I don't. It's two different words for washing. So you would have like washing and these two different Greek words. So that would be an example where the same thing is taught using uh, different different words. Okay, so just starting back up toward the top of 124. Thus, the institution of the supper is set forth not only in one scripture passage, but is repeated in four passages. And then is alluded to in many others. We talked about John 6. You know, Vicar was going through with the kids in the catechism last night, Hebrews 12. And remember where like he's contrasting, the argument is he's contrasting what can be seen and touched Mount Sinai and the terrors there. You have not come to this, he says, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the, he talks about the angels and fest, the, the city of, the, I, what is it, the city of God, of the living God, and angels and festal gathering, and so on and so forth. But the bottom of that is, and to the blood that gives a better testimony than Abel. What blood are we talking about? It's not blood in the abstract. Otherwise, he'd say, we are coming to the remembrance of Christ's cross. But you're coming to the blood. That's the blood of Christ. I mean, it dawned on me that it's 100% a sacramental illusion. And so there are many such places. Hebrews does this a couple of other places, too. Um, but there are, So there are other um, allusions to the Lord's Supper and to the words of institution. But right, if you're going to have the argument proper, you want to go to the words themselves. And that's Chemnitz's point when he talks about the words of institution being found repeated in four passages. So the words of institution are found repeated in those individual passages in such a way that it is clear that eating and drinking are to be understood of the reception that takes place with the mouth of the body. Again, that's the key. Because Christ doesn't say, take, eat with your faith. Or just says, take, eat. And he gives it to them and they eat. Take, drink. He doesn't say, drink in with your soul. He puts his cup to their lips. And so on. Kenneth continues, and which body... And which blood he means, he himself explains by repeated statements, saying, this is my body, namely that one which is given for you. And this is my blood, namely that which is shed for you. Now Christ gave not a sign or power and efficacy of his... He did not say, this is not my body, but you'll receive the power of my body given for you. This is not my blood, but you'll receive the efficacy of my blood, which is given for you. So Christ gave not a sign or power and efficacy of his absent body for us, but the same true and substantial body that was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. If then you want to know from Christ himself who instituted this supper, 
who is truth itself, and whom the Father commended to us from heaven to hear, what it is that is present in the supper, in, with, and under the bread and wine, and that is offered by the hand of the minister and received by the mouth of the body. I just, I've probably never read a better paragraph. He answers expressly, clearly, and plainly, this is my body which is given for you. This is my blood which is shed for you. I don't know if anyone could ever say it better. That's the whole thing. Yes, sir. Along with what you just said, since it is so clear, it seems the issue then is going to be one of um, those who disagree with that, claiming that it's metaphoric, Mm -hmm. right? So um, how then do we interpret, um, you know, like in Matthew 15, verse 2, every branch in me that does not bear fruit takes away great question Um, we wouldn't say well if my body doesn't sprout forth a lemon right (laughs) right so um, what do we do with that yeah great question so um, it's really important and I know this can sound like a cop-out but it's not at all We'll, we'll actually show that it's not demonstrate that it's not but the context has to determine if a metaphor is there okay take eat This is my, up until that point, is there any metaphor? Body. Now there's a metaphor, which is given for you. They assert that it's given for you on the cross. Is any of that metaphorical? No. Take, drink, is any of that metaphorical? No, literally take, drink. This is my blood metaphor, which is shed for you. So I'm simplifying, but if you take the words of institution and you want to assert that it's metaphor, pay attention to what's actually being asserted as metaphor. Literal, 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 one word, metaphor. Body is metaphor. Literal, 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 um, one word, blood is metaphor. Nobody reads the Bible like that. It's, it's, also, it's akin to going through Revelation and being like... All of these words, all of these numbers are symbolic. Ooh, a thousand-year reign of Christ. Literal. Just that one? Are you sure? Yep, just that one. We're sure. Not 144,000 saved? Only 144,000? No, 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 no. That's symbolic. So symbolic, 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 symbolic. Literal. So that in itself will tell you. Uh, The setting is he's giving a formal uh, last will and testament. He's instituting the new covenant, which puts it on the level of Moses out Mount Sinai. Moses out Mount Sinai, was he doing metaphor? Was the blood of the bulls metaphor? Was the body of the dead bulls metaphor? So Christ understands himself to be doing uh, the new covenant definitively. He's on Passover. Was any part of the Passover metaphorical? A metaphorical lamb? a metaphorical slaying, a metaphorical flesh of the lamb eaten, a metaphorical blood on the doorpost. So the entire context, biblically and in term, legally, even in terms of a last will and testament, as well as the words themselves demanding that every single word be taken literally except for body and blood, all of this makes absolutely definitive and certain that he means what he says. Now, 
if, and if then people want to say, well, I am the vine, um, or I am the door, or I am the shepherd, these kinds of things. If people want to say the, the words of institution are literal, those things are metaphors, for our purposes, I'll say, great. You've made a fine distinction. Jesus is preaching and preaching create, creatively uh, in the same way he uses uh, parables, and the parables contain metaphors and analogies and allusions, and so also um, can he say, you know, I am the... Okay, so that's probably, for your average educated American, that's probably the best answer you can give, um, even though there's much more to be gotten out of the I am statements of John's gospel, for example, and these things that we've kind of dismissed as metaphor, because as you lean into that, there's a problem too. He says, I am the vine, and you're going to go, well, Lord, no, you're not. There's an uncomfortability even with that over there. And I'm not the only one to do this. There are, um, I think I found this uh, in Augustine in one place, but I'd have to track it down. But anyway, I'm not alone amongst Lutheran pastors also in seeing it this way. So when Christ says that he is the bridegroom and his church is the bride, the way we human beings tend to take that in the modern age of solipsism where it's all about me is we say, we say a bunch of ridiculous things all on a string. We say, well, there's this thing that exists called marriage. Where did it come from? Never mind. Never mind. Never mind. It's just this thing that exists called marriage. Because God, who is infinite and all-powerful, somehow isn't powerful enough to communicate to me. What is going on over there? Oh, it's just the speak. Bird wants to come in. Oh, wants to come in. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. He heard about you. I think he <laughs> it is. All right. Okay, we'll take care of that later. You're serious? We have another one in here. Okay, well, interesting. Yeah, sure enough. Okay, what was I talking about now? That's the problem. Marriage. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is the idiocy of like 20th century and 21st century thinking on this. Okay, oh, here I am in my little existentialist, you know, solipsistic bubble. Um, there's this thing called marriage. Where did that come from? Never mind. Uh, now, God, who is so powerful that he can't act, and so all-knowing that he can't actually communicate to his creature. I mean, think of how absurd that is. Okay, has to use an analogy. So he says, ah, Rody, you know that thing uh, called, called marriage? How there's a, a bride and a bridegroom? Um, I'm kind of like that, okay? It's a metaphor, you see? Now, pardon me if I think that's not like inside out, upside down, and completely wrong-headed. What do I actually know about Christ? I know that before the foundation of the world, God intended to make a bride, this is the language scripture uses, for his church, or of his church, for his son. So the father has the son, and he's going to make, and this is the project. He's creating human beings to be in one flesh, a marital union with his son. Then he goes about saying, let there be light, and, and so on and so forth. When he gets to the institution of marriage, it reflects the, broad, the, the fundamental foundational plan, right? So marriage doesn't, 
the marriage of a man and a woman doesn't precede Christ and his church. Christ and his church precedes. Okay? So when he says, I am the bridegroom, it's like, well, you, don't, you haven't really married anyone. It's just a metaphor. We're missing something. We're missing something huge. He is the bridegroom after which all other bridegrooms are patterned, not the other way around. You see? Now, I know it takes a little bit more like mental exercise and you got to have maybe a second cup of coffee. But the same thing actually works with all of the I am statements. He is the vine. Thus, there is this created object called a vine that's green and leafy. These are incidental. But as a vine is with the branches, this is communicating something essential. Creation is reflecting something essential and something eternal about Christ. So when he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, I don't go, that's a metaphor. I go, that's objectively true, and creation is patterned after that objective reality. So yes, I can look at creation and meditate and know and understand, but what comes first and what is essential, and when all creation flies away, are you going to look at the Almighty in the eye and say, well, you're not really the vine and the branch, see? No. He is these things, and thus creation reflects who he is. Does that, does that make some sense? So now we're not talking strictly speaking. In order to just dismiss these things as metaphors, you have to be on the outside looking in. Or, or to put it another way, you have to consider yourself to be the center of the universe. And Christ is out there, and God is out there on the periphery trying to communicate to you through things that just somehow magically exist. Again, from A to Z, that's all foolish. So reverse it. God is at the center. I'm on the periphery. All of creation flows forth from him. He is saying, this is who I am, and know me through creation. Now, in my mind, and I'm hardly a literary expert, that's not a metaphor. There's something else with a different name going on there than a mere metaphor. Okay? Okay, so I know that's a lot to take in, but hopefully that'll, we can touch on it after class, too, some. Yes, one second. Let's get you the microphone. Would uh, uh, people object to saying that this... Uh, would people uh, try to make a metaphor out of Christ is my Savior? Exactly. <laughs> okay. That's the problem. Yeah. And, and strict, strictly speaking, those are predicate nominatives. It, they rename the subject. Yes, right. Strictly speaking, grammatically. Right. So you, so it's like it's like the meme, you know, which way, Western man, and you've got you know this terrible looking path and this good. Okay, but here's your path on that. You're going to end up in saying something ludicrously theologically retarded, like all theology is metaphor, or all theology is analogy, because you go, is is Christ literal? Is Savior literal? Is Lamb of God literal? No. No. Can never say that. I'm the center of the universe. God's out there. I'm going to understand him through these things. These things, including the very words themselves, are just sign and signified along with all creation. So all theology is analogy. All theology is metaphor. I don't know how to help. If God is at the center, I mean, imagine that. 
then the whole, the whole thing, program's reversed. And all of a sudden, it all makes sense. And God is truly, objectively speaking, right to our hearts and minds. And now his word, even if we want to make this distinction, his word via the immediate revelation of the scriptures is in accord with his revelation immediately through creation. And you have two books of revelation, both speaking you to the truth of the essence of who God is. So if I'm going to say, well, a plant's a leafy vine, you know, a vine's got, the, you know, it's this, kind of got this vine, it's this serpentine little thing, and it's got leaves, I'm going to say that's incidental to what an actual vine is. It's incidental to the relationship between the vine and the branches. We are one whole and one unity of Christ, and yet in a way that you can, just as you can make distinct vine and branch, you can make distinct Christ and people, and yet the vine and the branch are one, just as we are one with Christ. Thus, the vine and the branch in creation look the way they do, right? Okay, maybe enough on that. Anything else we want to touch on? So, I mean, just going, okay, let me, let me just make one quick sum, summary statement then. The words of institution themselves are what determines our, our understanding of the Lord's Supper. There's no reason whatsoever. The burden of proof for people who want to say that that's a metaphor, the burden of proof is on them. And it's going to be a, a completely uphill and impossible battle. Okay? At that level, we can, sure, dismiss the others as metaphor and from a like pure literary, literature kind of standpoint, fine, no problem. After we've got the Lord's Supper 100% shored up in our minds that he, he is speaking literally, he says what he means, then we can turn to those things that we've called metaphors and we can do a little deeper analysis and we can discover then that if, even if from a literary standpoint they are metaphors, from a objective reality standpoint, they're not. There's something different. Okay, on to, uh, we've got a couple minutes left. Let's do 262 and call it a day. But how can the body of Christ and his true blood be present at the same time in those countless places where the Lord's Supper is celebrated and be received by us with the mouth? Answer, in matters of faith, only the things are to be received and believed that we can either conceive with our mind or perceive with the senses, our whole faith would immediately collapse on all points. Think of Jesus. Um, if you just saw him and believed what your eyes saw and believed what your reason told you, just a human being. It requires faith to believe that he is the Son of God. Okay, so the whole thing would collapse if you're going to really... So that's the other problem with is the consistency problem. Um, in this one place, we're going to say, God can't do these things because my reason prohibits. But in all these other places, you've already shut reason up. In the Holy Trinity, you've shut reason up. In the um, Christology, you've shut reason up. In terms of uh, election... Um, why some are saved and not others, you've shut reason up, if you have. 
and so on. And then suddenly you get to the Lord's Supper and you're like, no, reason dominates. It can't possibly be in his body because of some stupid rational thing like God can't make his body be in multiple places. Okay, so that's Chemnitz's point. Picking back up, but faith is of the things that are revealed and taught by the clear word of God, though they seem impossible to us. Like God telling barren women and virgins that they'll conceive. Though they seem foolish in the eyes of the world and our reason. Yes, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, that little section that's bookended there is the master class on this. And really the master class in uh, Pauline epistemology, how it is we know what we know. And though they are not seen, things, in fact, in which our mind is to be brought into captivity. Hebrews 11, 2 Corinthians 10. Since then, the Lord's Supper is a great mystery and is not to be judged on the basis of our reason, but is rather to be received by faith in the fear of the Lord, according to his word. Whence the ancients called this sacrament a great and tremendous mystery. We should simply accept in faith what Christ, the mouth of truth, unable to lie or deceive, says and declares. But how it can be, we commit to him who instituted this supper, to whom is given all power in heaven and on earth. And I'll just add in one little you can, if you go through like any given gospel, say Matthew, but, or all the gospels collectively, what you can see is a catechesis of our Lord that will answer the questions of the Lord's Supper. I'll just point out too, how can he make wine be his blood? That's physically impossible. How can he make water into wine? Do you believe that he did? Well, yeah, I've got no problem. No Christian has any problem believing. Then why can't you believe that he would turn wine into his blood from the lesser to the greater? And the question in view here is, oh, he can't take that which is finite and make it for all intents and purposes infinite. He can't, can he? What about the feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000? Did he not take finite loaves and fish and distribute them as is needed with baskets remaining after. For all, he takes what is finite and for all intents and purposes makes it infinite, or at least as infinite as it needs to be to accomplish his task. If he can do it with bread and fish, can he not do it with his body and blood? Of course he can. So there's a catechesis that's taking place as you go along in the ministry of Christ that already precludes these questions. So when the disciples and Christians are receiving it, it's like, yeah, he already showed us that he can't. All right, that's it for today. We'll pick back up at 263 next week. The Lord be with you.